is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, and it's time for our culture beat, and we love to talk about what's on TV. We love it. By the way, in the night of HBO's new show, terrific. Just check it out. I mean, it's as good a law and procedural as you've ever seen. Richard Price, the great writer, written the screenplay. Fantastic. And we love Shark Tank, and we also love Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And we love this show. And luckily for me, I've had a change in my schedule. So now I'm home a lot of times when this thing's coming on. <laughs> and I watch it. And now I'm, I'm addicted to it. I mean, I just, if it's on, I'm watching. I don't yep. care if I'd seen it before. She's so entertaining. And by the way, there's a lot of deep social and cultural stuff going on in that show. And personal responsibility is a big one for her. And lying and cheating. I mean, she's just like old school. And so we're taking a look at a case right now. And this episode uh, involves a very animated plaintiff, a 30-something-year-old apartment renter named Karina Roy. The defendant's name is Nicole, a 50-something who is Karina's landlord. Judge Judy opens with a description of the roommate's complaint. Miss Roy, according to your complaint, you rented a room in defendant's home. Yes. You had an argument over Tupperware. Yes. As a result of that argument, you say you were assaulted, given an eviction notice... Forced to move, you want the defendant to pay you for the assault, pro rata for the rent, your moving expenses. Tell me about the argument. And here's Karina's very interesting argument. Well, um, the morning of June 6th, I woke up and um, I had been looking for my Tupperware throughout that week. And What um, Tupperware? This Tupperware right here. Oh, that Tupperware. Yeah, that Those Tupperware. Those two pieces. Yes. <laughs> So throughout the week and in the morning before work and everything, that's when I had time to ask her. And this was the third time that I had asked her for my Tupperware, and she was changing the subject when two other times I wasn't getting um, direct answers, and where she was directing me, they weren't there. Like the first time I asked her... I'm not interested. Okay. Just get to the so point. So I said, look, if I don't get my Tupperware back, I'll just take it off my rent. And she said, well, don't you dare. And she threw her blankets off her, with, which every morning... Just a second. Are you telling me you went into her bedroom yes. to ask... Let me finish my question. You went into her bedroom to ask for those two pieces of Tupperware? Yes, for the And third. she was in bed? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the landlord was in bed and threw her blankets off. Karina continues. Go ahead. So she threw her blankets off. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. But, you know, every other... Just morning. answer the question. <laughs> Tell me. She threw her blankets off mm -hmm. and said what? Don't you dare, you know, and she threw her blankets off and she ran to the door and slammed it open. She said, I ate it. And she stormed into the kitchen and I followed her and she um, opened her Tupperware cupboard and um, forced all of her Tupperware listen, on me listen, like that. Let me explain something to you. Don't get dramatic with me. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So she... And threw all of her Tupperware on me. She didn't throw all of her Tupperware on you. Yes, it. she did. Yes, did she, she did. Miss Roy, you're standing there, so what is what you're telling me? She took out each piece of Tupperware from the cupboard and threw it at you? No. She has a Tupperware cupboard, and she put her arm on one end of that Tupperware cupboard, and with all of her force, threw it on me, and I was standing behind her, and it landed on me. Is that the assault that you're talking about? That's one of them, yes. <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> and when was the other one? 
Then she kept standing there and screaming, you know, how dare you and don't you dare, don't you even dare, Karina, shame on you, shame on you. Shh, listen to me. Like this. I hear you. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is what she was yelling at go me. Go ahead. And I said, you know, Nicole, you said you were going to take care of my Tupperware and ever, you know, and on Sunday your maid came and I haven't seen him since. And she said, there's your answer, Karina. Look in that cupboard there. Look in that one. And I ran, I go over there and I open it up and it's kind of on the ground. So I kneel down and there's my Tupperware and I grab it. And when I'm down, she's leaning her whole body into me, pointing her finger in my face. How dare you? Don't you even dare. Shame on you. That's it. I want you out of here. And she hit my head with her finger. She had all of her weight on me next karina is careening out of control she isn't finished so what happened next so then i got up and i'm just like backing away i'm like backing away i'm walking out of the kitchen you know and um she threw her hand up and that's it karina i want you out of here in 30 days and i said good and anna stood up and said hey and looking directly at me and said hey hey the babies the babies as she's looking at me and I had not said anything through this whole entire time. What did she say? The babies. The babies. Hey! Quiet. Judy now turns to the defendant, the landlord. Okay, so you gave her a 14-day notice. My assistant and I decided... Shh. Okay. You have a problem with giving her her prorated rent? Um, I do, Your Honor, because although she physically moved out, her property was still in, in the room. I don't consider that a cup and her teddy bear leaving property in the house so that you couldn't rent the room again if you wanted to. All right. Now, next, you want her to pay your moving expenses. Is that right? Yes. Wrong. So like, we've just dealt with that. You don't get your moving expenses. And so what about, what about the payment for damages this poor lady received from her landlord's Tupperware assault? Now, damages due to the assault. I'm prepared to hear you if you want to tell me what your damages were as a result of the assault. Because of this, I mean, the way I physically felt, okay, was just like somebody just ripped my, I mean, I just felt hollow in here. I mean, I felt, I did not, I was, did Jeez. not feel stable at all. My driver You're not stable. <laughs> Anybody that walks into a bedroom, somebody's sleeping in their bed, to ask for two pieces of Tupperware and start an argument with them while they're in bed over two pieces of Tupperware isn't too stable. Okay. So Karina got leaned on and hit on the head with a finger and made it feel hollow inside her. Her heart was ripped out and her made her feel unstable. Here's Judge Judy awarding Karina for her early apartment dismissal. We also get their reactions. $199.92. That you are entitled to. Thank Judgment you. for the plaintiff in the amount of $199.92. Thank you. You want to give her back a bear? Certainly. Perfect. Bird, would you take care of the bear in the cup? Sure. Parties are excused. You may step out. She fought with all the tenants. She fought with me. She fought with my two sons who don't even live there anymore. Absolutely not. I'm such a meek, shy person. I bowed down to them and I stayed out of their way. Meek and shy. Definitely not, Karina. Well, we love Judge Judy. We love Shark Tank. Yeah. And we bring one or the other every week here on Our American Stories. Yes! No! Yes! No, no, no.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this story caught our attention here on the show. And you know his name, Stephen Curry. And, well, he was the AP Male Athlete of the Year last year. Hands down. Wasn't even close. And took this really awkward-sounding team, Golden State Warriors. I mean, who's ever thought of them as a championship contender? Right to the bigs and right to an NBA championship. Then went ahead and went 24-0 this year. Well, it turns out Steph Curry, well, he had quite a dad. And again, we like to celebrate father-son relationships here on this show. And Steph Curry, well, his dad was Del Curry. And Del played with the Charlotte Hornets and was quite a scorer and quite a player. But more importantly, he was quite a dad. And so we're going to play you a little bit about this father-son relationship. And earlier this year, as the Golden State Warriors were marching toward the Los Angeles record of 33 straight wins, they took a stop in Charlotte where Del Curry, Steph's dad, just happened to be the play-by-play and color commentator for the Hornets. And it just so happened that it was Del Curry night, and Steph was coming into town to ruin the party. Well, Dell, before the game, sat down to interview his son. Well, because he's a broadcaster. But something funny happened on this particular broadcast. The son took the microphone from the dad, and the player was interviewing the broadcaster. I'm joined by Steph Curry, reigning MVP. Son. That's right. Very proud of you, son. First question I'd like to ask you. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't it Del Curry night here at the Hornets Arena? It is. It is. All right. Uh, I'll take over the interview. It's more important to hear what you have to say on Del Curry night. So what does it feel like okay. to uh, have an organization, a city, honor you and your career and what all you mean to the uh, to the city? Wow. It's a great honor. Uh, I'm humbled by it. Uh, opportunity to say thanks to the city, friends, family. As long as you, you guys were along for a ride, it was a great the 10 years I had here, unbelievable memories, made numerous friends that are still around today. So it's going to be a great night. I'm really looking forward to it. That's nice. I remember a lot of your career, and especially all 10 years you play here uh, for the Hornets. So I'm really proud of you. Congratulations. I'm really proud again. Congratulations. But Steph wasn't done with the interview. He was still on the show, and he asks Dad about not just their life, but, well, what does he think about tonight's big game? Uh, let's talk about the game, though. Um, in your opinion, you know, what are the keys to success for the Hornets uh, going against a tough Warriors basketball team? Well, tough team, you're right. The Hornets, <laughs> last game of a seven-game series, they're playing really well. They're going to have to match you guys with the three ball. They are not allowed to go through periods of the game where they can't score the basketball. I think they're going to have to keep scoring consistently and try to contain this guy, leading scorer of the NBA. It's going to be a big job. Well, I got a good good uh, afternoon of sleep, so I should be ready to go. But tonight is your night. Congratulations. Um, Del Curry night is a huge honor and accomplishment. The family, I know, is all proud. So uh, enjoy the whole, all the festivities, the whole experience, and uh, congratulations. Well, thanks for being here, man. <laughs> Love you. And, hey, don't spoil my night, man. <laughs> no, no promises for that one. <laughs> don't spoil my night, man. And you could hear the camaraderie and the love between these two guys. And it's just so interesting that this young man, Steph Curry, well, the way he comports himself on the court, you notice every time he scores, he touches his chest and then he points to the sky. And he's pointing to the sky because he's thanking God. And he's pointing to his heart because he's thanking his dad. And he does this after every single basket. And people don't know that. But that's why this guy's grounded. You won't see pictures of him in an elevator beating up his wife. You won't see those pictures. Well, Steph Curry was also the MVP in ESPN 
Well, they honored him with some footage of his MVP award speech, but they cut it up and they left a lot of things out of that speech. And what we wanted to do is go back to that speech last year and learn a little bit more about Stephen Curry, his father, his values, his character, the man he is, and why, why we so honor and like this guy. Well, he began this speech first by thanking his wife. I got to start with my wife. Um, uh, we met when we were 14, 15 years old in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the last seven, eight years have been amazing. Uh, we've both grown into adults. We've uh, you know, moved cross country together, started a new life. And you're my backbone. You allowed me to, to do what I do, uh, to focus on basketball and my career. Um, and still, you know, I have a family. That's The sacrifices you make are unbelievable and uh, I can't thank you enough for who you are as a person how you challenge me how you inspire me every single day we have a beautiful daughter one on the way um she's over there smiling at me (laughs) um just I love you so much and I can't thank you enough for just being there for me you know day in day out whether I have a good game a bad game we lose we win um when I go home things are good and and that that's comforting to know, and um, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for everything you've done for me, and you deserve a round of applause for sure. Next, this remarkable young man thanked the cornerstone of his foundation. I want to use this opportunity to you know, shed light on, on who I am and, and what drives me to play the way that I do. Um, I do a little sign on the court every time I make a shot or make a good pass and I pound my chest and point to the sky and it symbolizes that I have a heart for God, um, something that my mom and I came up with in college and, and I do it every time I step on the floor as a reminder of, of who I'm playing for and people should know who I represent and, and, and why I am who I am and that's because of my Lord and Savior so I can't say that enough. Many thought that being the son of an NBA player would pave an easy path for Stefan in the world of basketball. But Stefan said, au contraire. I was always the smallest kid on my, my team. When it comes to basketball, I was always the smallest kid on my team. I had a terrible, ugly catapult shot from uh, the time I was 14 because I wasn't strong enough to shoot over my head, and I had to re- reconstruct that over a summer, and it was the worst three months of my life. Um, even when I got to high school, I wasn't ranked. That's, you know, I wasn't ranked. I wasn't highly touted as a high school prospect. I had nobody really running, knocking on my door, saying, please, please, please come play for our school until Coach McKillop called. And, um, you know, everything happens for a reason, and there's there's a story to, to everything. And and if you take time to realize, you know, what what your dream is and, and what you really want in life, no matter what it is, whether it's sports, whether it's in other fields, um, you have to realize that there's always work to do and you want to be the hardest working person in whatever you do and you'll put yourself in position to be successful. Um, and you have to have a passion about what you do. And basketball was mine and that's what's carried me to this point. And here's what you really learn about this young man. He spent the next 14 minutes thanking each member of his 14-man team. Here he is talking about Andre Iguodala. 
Dre, Andre. Um, we probably talk about golf more than we talk about basketball. <laughs> but the the conversation we had two years ago um, at Oracle Arena at half court, I remember that. Um, man, I'm about to cry on that one. That meant a lot to me because basketball is important to me, but my family and my faith are ten times more important to me, and you recognize that. And the, what you said on the court, um, I'll never forget that. And obviously the decision after that summer was was big, but, um, man, that meant a lot to me. Um, and I just want to say thank you for that. Um, I appreciate who, who you are as a player and as a person. Um, we had some crazy conversations when you were in the locker room, but um, <laughs> but uh, you're the ultimate vet, ultimate professional, and uh, man, I appreciate you. And then he had a personal message for his dad. And Pops, you're the example of what a true professional is on and off the court. You, I, I remember a lot of your career, um, and to be able to follow in your footsteps. It uh, it means a lot to me. This is special. Um, I'm really proud of you know what you were able to do in your career, and um, I don't take that for granted at all. A lot of people um, thought I had it easy with the pops playing you know in the NBA, but it was uh, it was a, I'll get to that part down the road. But it was an interesting journey, and um, just who you are, you you made it okay for me to have a family at my age when I when I started it, and to know that um, you take care of your business, you know you, you you'll be all right. So so thank you so much. Oh man, just beautiful listening to a grown man crying as he tries to articulate his love for his dad. Dad, you took me how to take care of, you taught me how to take care of business. That's what fathers are supposed to do. This is Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Stephon Curry you didn't hear on ESPN. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, where we love great storytelling about music, sports, love, death, business, American history. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity. And I think we love generosity because of what underlies generosity. And that's something we like to call gratitude, because you can't be generous in the end, I think, without being grateful. And I think the two go hand in hand. And that's why we do this segment. And there are no people in this world more generous than the American people. Study after study proves that. Arthur Brooks has written a great book almost 10 years ago, I think, called Who Really Cares? And it's all about who gives the most, what country gives the most, what states give the most. It's really fascinating. And that brings us to our sweet charity segment and our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable. And they're the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity 
protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern Renaissance man. Carl has authored 11 books, including two based on his time in Iraq, a storytelling cookbook, and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here is a story from that great collection. For most of history, the enormous repository of human knowledge represented by books was out of reach for the blind. Only a small percentage of persons with vision loss have ever mastered Braille, the complicated method of reading by touch. So when it came to accessing literature, history, practical information, and everything else contained between hardcovers, the blind were literally in the dark. In 1932, a pair of donors changed that forever. Andrew Carnegie's main charity had long worked to bring useful information to the blind, for instance, by developing a Braille typewriter. In the project I'm about to describe, Carnegie was joined by Mrs. Ada Moore, a generous patron of art and libraries. Together, these two givers funded a crash effort by the American Foundation for the Blind to bring books to the sightless in a practical audio form. With their grants in hand, the AFB went hunting for practical technology that could turn the written word into easily shareable spoken words. At that moment in the early 1930s, the foundation eventually zeroed in on a brand new patent for what was being called the Long Playing Record, or LP. LPs were much larger and slower spinning than the 78 RPM records that were then popular, and thus played more than four times as long on each side. That made it much more feasible to create albums of extended readings from books. If this was going to work, though, the recorded discs would have to be made out of some material durable enough to stand up to shipping from house to house among blind subscribers. Eventually, the American Foundation for the Blind settled on pressing their recordings onto flexible vinyl. Next, they had to start building players for these newly invented records. They created one that was electric and one that was hand-cranked for rural folks who didn't yet have electricity in their home. Great effort was expended to make sure these players would be cheap enough for mass purchase, reliable, and sufficiently simple to be operated by people without eyesight. This unusual philanthropic product development effort succeeded. Then the foundation had to line up texts and readers. Some of the first items they chose to record were the four Gospels and Psalms from the Bible, the Declaration of Independence, works by Shakespeare, and then many classic and popular books. They convinced publishers and authors to make works available for a nominal rights fee of $25 per title. The American Foundation for the Blind recruited actors and authors and celebrities to read the books they selected, then turned out LP pressings by the thousands. Here is an early example. The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde, recorded solely for the use of the blind in the talking book studios of American Foundation for the Blind Incorporated. High above the city on a tall column stood the statue of the Happy Prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. Starting in 1934, so-called talking books began to be shipped all across the country. Blind Americans everywhere suddenly had access to literature, which I'm sure left many of the first recipients wide-eyed with wonder. 
As time went on, a broader variety of works were recorded. The Message to Congress by President Roosevelt after the Pearl Harbor attack. A Guide to Understanding Symphonies a collection of bird calls recorded by the Cornell Ornithology Lab. All of these were made into albums and put in the mail to inform and entertain sightless citizens. And here's a fact you can use at your next dinner party. For fully the first 14 years of its existence, the LP record was enjoyed exclusively by the blind. Eventually, commercial companies realized that the technology funded by Carnegie and Moore and then popularized on a small scale among the visually impaired could also become a hugely popular medium for playing music. In 1948, CBS brought out the first vinyl music LP for the general public. It was Mendelssohn's great violin concerto in E minor. CBS also put pop music onto the new discs, starting with an album of Frank Sinatra tunes. This was one of the songs on that very first Columbia LP. She may be waiting, just anticipating things she may never possess while she's without them. Try a little tenderness. The rest, as they say, was history. The LP record became an iconic part of American popular culture. Even the cardboard jackets on the big 12-inch discs developed into a kind of art form. People got so hooked on vinyl records, they're even making a comeback today among hipsters who have a world of electronic music alternatives to choose from. And there's a little coda to this story for podcast fans. While he was convalescing in 1955 from a heart attack, President Dwight Eisenhower asked to use Talking Books records and an LP player while he was bedridden. This was one of the first times that people realized that stories spoken aloud didn't have to be for the blind alone. The idea of audiobooks for the general public took a step forward. And of course, now there are entire ecosystems of audio storytelling. Thus did a charitable product for the sightless gradually become a huge part of the culture of all Americans. That's what sometimes happens when you do a good deed for people in need. And there you have it. Carl Zinsmeister, as always, doing a great job for us on Our American Stories in our sweet charity series. Well, it proves again and again what giving can do. And by the way, we did a tremendous hour on Andrew Carnegie. And Greg Hengler is always reminding us it's not Carnegie, it's Carnegie. And uh, he's right. And so we want to say it right. And uh, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and go to our This Day in History segments and catch all of our history segments. And that's everything from Robert De Niro's birth straight through to the Wright brothers, and for that particular hour, we were joined by none other than David McCulloch. And we did a terrific hour on Alexander Hamilton and his life, and we were joined by Ron Chernow, who wrote the book upon which the sensational play was based. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Sweet Charity, 
The segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And, of course, Carl's great collection of philanthropic stories, the Almanac of American Philanthropy. This is Our American Stories, and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician. Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s, he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. <laughs> kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? I always say, Oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> it's one of my habits. Yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, You know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh, gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. Uh, <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. 
shake. Okay, we're moving now, Evo. Yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. Now, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slims, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> Oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. I'm so mad at my mother. I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. I said, hey, I work for a living. So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she calls me up and says she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is this? So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> Oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip... We hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audio book. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them which I'm sure came about because you finally realize that the audience is capable of murdering you. 
Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. <laughs> he went on television right at the right time, went, Hi, everything's great! <laughs> but he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. go to foreign countries and they get off the plane and people go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> now the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. <laughs> and then go home and, did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. Oh, and we're cracking up here and that's what we want to do. And we're going to be going back Across the Pantheon, we're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. Enjoy the music. Ladies love to style. Rockin' for a mile. Rockin' tut, tut. 
crocodile. He gave his life for tourism. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our show is heard all over the country, from places like Atlanta to Sacramento, and all kinds of markets in between, and we're adding them every day. And I think it's because all we do is tell stories here, and redemptive ones whenever we can. And when faith plays a role in the life of these stories, it's there, and when it doesn't, we're fine with that too. And that makes us very different, too. And we'll often tell stories where we're bringing people who otherwise would not have brought together together in a normal realm of life. And that is that often we'll be talking about things where the left and the right agree when we do talk about things that are political. But we rarely do those things anyway. That is political stories. And today we wanted to focus on sports but a behind-the-scenes sports story, because we are broadcasting out of a small town called Oxford, Mississippi, which is the home of Ole Miss and the home of SEC sports. And when you talk about SEC sports, my goodness, that means SEC football. Not that there aren't other great sports programs in the SEC, but this is the one that the SEC is best known for. And, you know, we've been talking about what the coach's life might be like, and we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to talk to some of the coaches' wives and the support system behind the men who run these programs? And right now it's all men who run SEC sports programs. We also thought it might be interesting to talk to some of the men who support women who have careers that are high-powered. And that's what interests us here on Our American Stories. Marriage is very important to us. What makes them work? What makes them tick? And joining us today to talk is the wife of the head coach, of Ole Miss's football program, a remarkable guy who's turned the program around, you Freeze. And we're joined by Jill. And Jill first told us about how she knew you was the one when they met in college at the University of Southern Mississippi. He was different from anyone I had ever seen before. He was so committed at that age in college to his relationship with Christ. I had never seen anybody that just, I mean, he just didn't compromise. Um, I mean, the first time I met him, he told me he was, um, had mentioned he was going to go preach in a church and I didn't believe him. He's like, come with me. And I was like, okay. And so I, he picks me up and we're, we're going and it's like in Petal, Mississippi. So it's a good little drive. And I'm just thinking, this is like a pickup line. I'm like, you know, he's, (laughs) he is not serious. And we get to this little church and um, he goes in, and I'm thinking any minute now he's going to tell me it was a joke, and 
He's like, I'm going to go find the preacher. You just wait. And then he, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to come out now. Now he's going to tell me it was a joke. And he comes out with the preacher, and he's mic'd up. He gets up in that pulpit, and he just takes me to the very throne of God. And I knew then I wanted to be around him because he was going to help me be a better person. And he has. And Jill was, as you can tell, tearing up a bit there. And uh, we love doing this on Our American Stories is, you know, finding out who people are, what's important to them. And my goodness, when you watch Coach Freeze with his boys and in this town, you see a man with a real heart for people and a real heart for God. It's just who he is. So, again, we will not edit out the core aspects of any human being's dimension on this show. You and Jill Freeze got married. And they're on their way to their honeymoon, and they stop in, of all places, Knoxville, Tennessee, the home to another SEC football team, the Tennessee Volunteers. And you does this pretty strange thing for a honeymoon. My wife would have knocked me over the head. Take a listen. We could go to Neyland Stadium, and he is determined to get on this field. And so um, he finds a place where we can slip in, and so we do. And um, we're standing down on the field. I've never seen him coach a game, ever. I mean, he's just graduated from college, and um, we get married on July 25th, so uh, we only have a few days before he has to be back for football to start. And um, he looks me dead in the eye and says, I will be the head coach of an SEC team one day. Wow. And I knew it. I believed it right then and there. Yes, you will, because he just – I had no doubt. He just was determined, and I knew he was. I'd never seen him coach, and didn't have a clue about him, but about that, but um, but yeah. believed it. Well, the life of a coach and the coach's family can be tough, like a career in the family. Lots of moving around in order to keep climbing the ladder. Remarkably, most of the moving hasn't phased Jill. She says that when God says it's time to go, He makes you ready to go. But there was this one move from leaving his very first collegiate head coaching job at Lambeth University. It was a lot tougher. We have great success, but the school is going under. And so we're not getting paid. And it it comes a point where you're like, we've got to do something because you have to get paid. Yep. And so um, he had interviewed at Arkansas State and came home and said, I think this is the job. I think this is the place. And he's like, it would be perfect for us. But they hired someone else. The only other job offer was San Jose State in California. And mm-hmm. I probably, I did something I never do and haven't done since. I pushed him. I pushed him like, you've got to get a job. It's it. This is the job. You've got to take it. God closed that door. It's obvious this is the open door. We've got to go. And so he left, and um, I was teaching at that time and was under contract and could not get out of my contract until February. um, That would give them time to hire someone in my place. Um, Mm -hmm. I was teaching at a small Christian school. And so um, he left for two months before we moved out there. And it was the hardest two months we ever went through. And and if nothing else from that, I did learn my husband loves me. I mean, he loves me. Um, I probably struggled with that. Early in our marriage, I had a hard time. I knew he loved our kids, and I knew he was committed to me. But really, um, being able to receive that he loved me, I learned that then. And so it was a hard two months. And we learned then also that we don't work well together um, as, a, as a family, not together. Right. And so when he goes, we go. And um, so those were hard lessons. That, I mean, but they, they were good lessons. We've learned them, and, 
And he was there for two months, and the guy at Arkansas State took another job. And so we move all of our stuff (laughs) out to San Jose, and the day we get it out there that we're supposed to unload, we get the call from Arkansas State. They offer him the job. And, well, that's a tough moving story again. I don't think I can move around as much, give my wife that news. I certainly couldn't drag her into a stadium and do what Coach Freeze did and does. And this is the unfettered love of a woman for her man. And by the way, the man for the woman. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about a coach's life and a coach's wife. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Spouses and what they do and sometimes what they sacrifice for their husbands and wives. By the way, we'll do one on Ruth Bader Ginsburg because it turns out her husband made tremendous career sacrifices for his wife. And sometimes it's husbands doing it for the wife. Sometimes it's the wives for the husbands. And in SEC football, it's generally coaches' wives. And by the way, what we love to talk about, particularly are those careers where there really is a lot of transition, and that's military lives and coaches' lives, and there are other professions like that where there's a lot of moving, and it adds a lot of stress to family life. One other story that we, were, we, we gathered but didn't get into in the interview, when the Freezes were moving to Arkansas State, Jill's task was to enroll the girls in school and to find a place to rent before the confused moving men arrived with their belongings. But the school wouldn't enroll their daughters until they had a legitimate address. Thankfully, Jill found another school that would enroll them as long as they were classified as homeless. Go figure. Jill quickly found a house to rent in the same school district. The moving van unloaded the truck, and Jill spent the entire day organizing the girls' rooms, the kitchen. Early the next morning, you you pulled into a convenience store telling his wife he had to get a newspaper and find them another place to live. He explained that the house she had rented did not have access to ESPN. And he had to have access to SEC football. Jill said of that time, I did have my moment. I got a little teary telling you, I have to know where we are going to be. And true to his word, you found them a house immediately. So these are the kind of stories and tensions. I'm telling you, my wife, I think the the handgun might have come out. Um, Find ESPN somewhere else, I think she would have told me. But you know what, coach's wife, it's a must. Let's take a listen to more of our conversation earlier with Jill Freeze, one day the Freezes got a call that could make their life a lot more glamorous. Use very first offer to be the head coach of an SEC football team, Ole Miss. And yet Jill said this was a hard decision for them to make, which would stun a lot of people, and for a reason you might not expect. At Arkansas State, we had had great success. And so um, with that comes opportunities. And we had several choices to make, um, I mean, to choose from. And we loved it there. It's the best church we've ever been in. Our um, oldest daughter was in the youth group. Our youngest daughter was coming up into the youth group. And it was a phenomenal youth group, like captured her heart for Jesus in months. I mean, it just, it, it was so good. And so we were, the people there were amazing. We were very happy there. It was a great place for us. Um so it, 
it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, you you want to be where God wants you to be, and you don't want to miss that. You don't want to mess that up. And um, it came time to have it to make a decision and 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 tell Ole Miss um, a yes or no. And I, I remember um, we're supposed to tell them on Sunday, and we're we're playing on Saturday, and, and we still didn't know. Like we still had not just had clarity or peace about what the right decision was for us in any of these options. And um, and that morning in his um, quiet time, it was um, a verse in his uh, coach's Bible that he read every for games or whatever, and and the verse was about taking you back to the place of exile. And Ole Miss is the only place he's ever been fired from. And so we just really felt like God was just confirming, like, this this is it. Um, because everybody else was telling us, no, this, you don't want to do this. It, it's a dumpster fire. You, you don't want to go there. They, I mean, that's it's going to be the end of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bad decision. And yet, um, once we knew that that's what God wanted us to do, that was it. We were, we were in. And that tells you a lot about the couple. And again, this happens a lot in modern life. There are people who take their faith seriously, and this is how they sound, and we will not, again, cut that out. As a coach's wife, you are, of course, well, you're, of course, forced to make moving decisions with your husband, as we've told, as we've discussed. But Jill told us she had to make a much more fundamental decision about the family's life and about her approach towards it. I could tell very quickly um, I had a choice to make. Um, as a coach's wife, he was going to be spending lots and lots of hours with his job. And I could, um, had a choice. I could be bitter about that and resentful and kind of do my own thing. Or I could be all in and invest and do all that I could to be a part. Um, there are a lot of things I can't do because it's, it's, you know, both basically um, young men that he's working with. So, you know, it's, it's not like I'm going to have the one-on-one that he has, nor do I want that. But at the same time, um, what can I do? Uh, to help him be the best he can at his job. Um, and so I think that's different for every coach's wife. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had to figure that out. And then we moved from high school into college, and that changed. Um, and so it's just uh, trying to f- – he went from assistant coach to head coach, and then it changed again. And so for me, um, now that he's a head coach, I know one of the biggest things I can do to help him is um, to help serve the coach's wives. Right. And so if we can um, form a good community and a good support group within ourselves, it takes some of the pressure off their husbands. Mm-hmm. And so um, I felt like God was leading me to lead a Bible study. And I'm the person who never spoke in the Bible study. <laughs> I'm the one that never prayed out loud. And so it took me a while to um, to kind of surrender and, and, and do that. And so... Um, I know that that is one of the reasons why our staff has the chemistry it has, because you can't study God's word together and pray together and not just have a bond that is um, beyond anything that you could form on your own. It is um, it is an amazing blessing to me as well as to them. And we have an amazing support group that when there's something going on, we know we, I've got 22 women I can call and they've got my back. And they have 22 women that, Whatever it is, we're going to help you. And by the way, we talked a little bit about John Wooden and the role Faith had played in his life. And it turns out that this is what the coach's wife was bringing to the coach and to the town 
and to the players because these women didn't just help themselves. They were helping the boys. And then as wives, one of the things, um, I didn't come up with this idea. It was one of our other ones uh, because women are relational. So for us to love football and to love this, it's about the relationships. It's yep. about learning their stories. And, and so how could we um, help impact and, and capture their hearts? And so each week we write, um, we rotate names and we split it up and we get like nine to 10 names each week. And we pray for those nine to 10 young men by name every day that week. And before Thursday morning, at some point during the week, we've written them a note just to them about what we prayed about or something to encourage them. If we know they're going through something, it'll kind of go to that. Maybe give a Bible verse. Everybody's different. We all write different. Some of us write a long thing, some a little short sentence. But that's how we um, kind of build that bond with us, but that at the same time, these they, they learn like that – it's not just their coach that cares about them. It's his wife and his whole kids and his family. They all care about me, and they're, they're on my side, and they're for me. And by the way, whether you're a believer or not, if a bunch of people are sitting around and they're praying for you, that's just a wonderful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. And finally, we asked Jill Freeze how she deals with hearing folks criticize her husband and especially how their daughters deal with the same thing. I kind of have this motto, and I teach and I teach it to the girls. This is kind of how we all deal with it, is we have an audience of one. And all these other people aren't it. Um, and if we can please our audience of one, who for us is God, he'll, he's going to take care of all the rest. Um, doesn't always look like it, trying to teach our girls through some hard things that um, – it's not enough to know God's word. We've got to apply God's word. And when we say that we walk by faith and not by sight, then we have to do that. We have to trust that God is working all things for our good, even when it doesn't look like it. doesn't matter what everybody else is saying. doesn't matter um, about any of it. We're trusting in God and God alone, and he's got our back, and he is going to work it all out for our good. And I believe that. I honestly believe that. Um, is it always easy? No. But... It is what gets me through it. It strengthens me, and it's what we're teaching our girls. We also don't read a lot. Like I don't. I am the least informed person out there um, because I don't read the. I don't read the papers. I don't. I don't get on any of the message boards. I don't. Um, I don't watch the news. I, I'm. I'm out of the loop. I, I'm purposefully out of the loop. And that's a wise choice because in a town like this, there's sports talk all the time, and it never ends. And it generally. Unless it's a perfect season, lots of conjecture about what the coach did wrong. Jill Freeze, the wife behind the man who's running the Ole Miss sports program in so many places around this country. There are great women supporting their husbands. And by the way, there are all kinds of great men supporting their wives and their lives and their careers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all that we do.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, a man whose products you may have used, a man who made the world more free for all of us, but a man you likely don't know was born, and it is his 100th birthday. This one man single-handedly as a private citizen probably did more to tear down communism in, in the East than just about anyone else in government or out of government. There was really no support from the U.S. government in what we were trying to do. My experience has been that anyone who spends his own money spends it more wisely than contractors who spend the government's money. Because he, of course, is a great fighter for democracy. And who has extended the boundaries of freedom. I knew from my reading, of course, that uh, behind the Iron Curtain were people who had the fire of freedom within them. And that with proper resources, they could hasten the dissolution of the entire Soviet empire. Bob Kriebel, This Day in History. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. For some reason, Gorbachev never realized or never acknowledged that Bob Kriebel was a, a potential threat. He probably figured, well, what can one businessman do when I've got thousands of nuclear weapons and hundreds of thousands of troops? Bob Kriebel proved that one man could really make a difference. He was able to make a difference thanks to the United States free enterprise system the fruits of which he then turned around and used to help bring basic freedoms and a free enterprise economy to people who didn't have it. To people who didn't have a rich variety of pudding pops. People like Soviet leader Boris Yeltsin, who walked into an American grocery store for the first time in 1989, according to Mike Rowe. looked as if he'd seen a ghost. He wandered up and down the aisles, slowly at first, and then with increased agitation. His expression seemed to switch back and forth between fascinated and demoralized. He paused to stare in wonderment at the fresh fish, the meat selections, and the produce department. He was enraptured peppering the customers with questions. At one point, the man asked the store manager, what type of advanced education was required to run a store as magnificent as this? The manager blushed. The employees had never seen anything like it. By all accounts, though, it was the sight of frozen pudding pops that left the visitor in utter disbelief. 
like an indigenous member of some forgotten tribe deep in the Amazon who glanced up one day and saw a 747 flying overhead. This well-dressed visitor, this highly educated, undeniably successful, and clearly important individual was left slack-jawed by pudding pops. There were just so many in such a rich variety of flavors. While our free enterprise system encouraged entrepreneurs to solve the problem of too few kinds of pudding pops, and they did, it also encouraged Bob Kriebel and his father Vernon to solve another, more serious problem. Here's the former president of the Heritage Foundation, Ed Fulner. Together they both started thinking about the problem of, very simply, nuts and bolts. Many times, when you put a nut onto a bolt, you don't want it to move. Yet the whole principle of nuts and bolts were that nuts could be removed. And this mechanical problem of attaching nuts to bolts for uh, permanent installations, whether it was a farm tractor or a uh, computer wall mount, uh, got them to thinking, well, maybe it doesn't need a mechanical solution. Maybe what it needs is a chemical solution. Before this, Bob Kriebel was a research chemist at the behemoth General Electric. And it was other chemists at GE who developed the early form of a chemical solution to this problem. But GE managers decided to abandon it after failing to find easy commercial uses. They didn't even file a patent license for it. So it went into the public domain for anyone to improve upon and use. And that's exactly what Bob Kriebel would do. Bob knew the potential of the invention, and so in 1965, he left GE and joined Vernon in his lab. They started working on different solvents that could, in effect, lock together the nut and bolt permanently. Eventually, they figured one out. It became Loctite. They started out when they first incorporated the company. I think they had about $300 a month in sales which is not very much even back in the 1950s when they got started, uh, but it burgeoned into what became a Fortune 500 company uh, and something that everybody around the world knows and uses and just takes for granted now, 50 years later. Just like the bureaucracy at GE took for granted the chemical solution their folks had developed. Bob Kriebel would tell the stories about how frustrating it was to work first at what was a predecessor to Standard Oil, Sacconi Vacuum Oil Company, and then later at General Electric with the levels, levels of bureaucracy. I mean, for General Electric, this whole idea of what eventually beca became Loctite's key products uh, should have been a no-brainer. It should have become a, an instant uh, profit center. It should have become an instant uh, main production of, of General Electric. But uh, they just didn't see it that way, and it wasn't on anybody's uh, flow chart in terms of, of what would make the company successful. But it would enable Bob Kriebel to create tens of thousands of well-paying jobs, and to have personal prosperity, not that he'd use it on himself. He didn't want any of the extraneous big things. He drove around in a tiny Ford Fiesta so that he could use his money on more important things than any old car that could get you from A to B. I retired from my company, decided to dedicate my remaining years to the cause of spreading democracy and free market capitalism to those who would soon be breaking out 
from behind the Iron Curtain. My immediate problem was identifying who those freedom fighters were. I decided that the best way to go out and was to go out and check the situation myself. And so Preble headed to Paris in 1989. Where Resistance International was hosting a convention of Soviet freedom fighters. There we first met the leaders of the democratic movement throughout the Soviet Empire. Preble met them and noticed they had a problem that would be unthinkable in America, even for the founders of our country in the 18th century. But it was a very real problem whole centuries later in the Soviet Union. And when we come back, this remarkable story, Bob Kreeble's fight to allow others to be free as he was born free. And he died in 1997. He would have celebrated his 100th birthday today on this day in history. When we come back, the closing part of this remarkable story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our This Day in History segment. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Bob Kreeble, who was founder of the Heritage Foundation, Ed Fulner pointed out, did more than any private citizen in history to tear down communism in the Soviet Union. And Kreeble, of course, is the founder of Loctite, and his idea of retirement, founding the Kreeble Institute to fight for freedom in the Soviet Union. And when we left off, it was his very first meeting with Soviet resistance leaders in 1989. The resistance leaders knew each other by name, but there was little communication among them because neither the postal service nor the telephone was of much use. We set out to do what we could to solve the communication problem. We got the idea that we would travel to key cities posing as newspaper reporters. Under this title, we carried with us the tool of that trade. When he arrived in Moscow, and he'd have to go through customs, and he'd have two big boxes with him, and the boxes would have uh, uh, computer printers or fax machines in it, and uh, in effect, he'd have to bribe the customs officers to let him bring these machines in. Anticipating that getting these weapons for democracy past customs would be our greatest challenge, we used the explanation of how important these devices were to us in doing our job as reporters. And that when they broke down, as they often did, we functionaries were unable to repair them. The freedom fighters spread across the Soviet Union could now communicate and plot together. And that wasn't the only way communication could now freely flow. Transmitting 
real information about freedom uh, from the West back into the Soviet Union. Bob Kriebel wasn't finished. He'd make over 80 trips to Eastern Europe as a man in his late 70s. The Soviet dissidents asked for more help, and so he gave it. They advised him that they were interested in political training because they had no um, experience in politics. Knowing American political operatives who did, Bob launched the Kriebel Institute to organize their efforts and house them, including Bill Pascoe and Paul Weyrich. There, Pascoe talked about developing campaign techniques that didn't require telephone and TV. Next three cities, we emphasized door-to-door -door campaigning. The political tactics they taught weren't sexy, but they were effective. Their very first training was in Moscow. This was a huge event. I, I mean, the first visit of them to Moscow because it was like a collision of civilizations. I do not exaggerate, but yeah. this is how it was felt here in uh, Russia. Yeah. Because we spoke different languages. We uh, tried to share ideas and, you know, it was really even forbidden for Russians to speak to foreigners, mm. for citizens of Soviet Union to speak to foreigners without control of KGB. Yeah. So really it was breakthrough yeah. for me. And historic for many more. The Kriebel trainings were in high demand. We've held over 200 seminars and conferences in the former Soviet Empire, covering 81 cities, 23 countries, and involving 16,000 grassroots leaders from Yeltsin on down. And the trainings made a huge impact. In 1989, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev opened up the Congress elections to multiple candidates for the first time ever. And many Kreeble-trained candidates got elected, further sowing seeds of communism's destruction. I mean, at one point, Bob Kreeble decided he was going to focus on Ukraine. And he went in and did training programs through his Kreeble Institute for Freedom Fighters in Ukraine trained thousands of them in Ukraine, and they had a referendum. This was when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, and 89% of Ukrainian people, in effect, voted for Bob Kreeble and the way of freedom. They voted for independence. This eventually led, of course, to uh, the, the whole collapse of the system inside Ukraine, inside the Soviet Union. Kreeble says they were successful for a reason you might not think. When a Russian meets his first American, he's cautious. But if there's an interpreter, he will express his curiosity. And then after a few exchanges, the conversation warms up. He wants to know why we are there, what we think of what we see, how we live at home. The talk becomes animated. You folks are very much like us, and I'm so glad to know it. I don't think I would have such exchanges if I didn't make it clear at the start that I'm a private person with no official obligation. The Russian people remain very suspect of government and the people who are sponsored by it. And because Kreeble and his team were seen as nobodies, they were allowed to operate as nobodies would, without restriction. Here's Kreeble's colleague, John Exnixios. We were able just to get our visas by applying to the Russian embassy. Uh, the Soviet embassy at the time, and um, go to places we wanted to go. It was remarkably free in the sense that we could do what we wanted to do, 
it was as if the Soviet Union didn't know what we were doing and um, paid really very, very little attention to us. Looking back on it in retrospect, for them to allow a foreign group of people to come into their country to go pretty much where they wanted to go and give the support that we were giving to the dissidents is, um, I think, a result of them not being competent to um, understand what was happening. And how could they? How could the government possibly know everything? It's why big government fails. And its worst version, communism, failed in the Soviet Union. Our own government wasn't exactly conducive either. When we arrived in Budapest, we were told there would be no conference. We were discovered that a staff member of the American embassy had told the Hungarian embassy government that they'd be making a big mistake if they dealt with right-wing people like us. The American press didn't look upon them any more fondly. Business Week ran a derisive article titled The Quixotic Quest of Robert Kreeble. He was 76 years old at one, time, at one point just before he passed. And uh, he was a man in a hurry who really wanted to make sure that the Berlin Wall and all of the Soviet communism would fall. He not only thought it was uh, quicker than the editors at Business Week or other, uh, or the New York Times and Washington Post thought, uh, he thought it was quicker certainly than the then president of the Heritage Foundation, that was me, uh, thought it would ever happen because I kept saying, well, Bob, uh, what you're talking about in terms of the Berlin Wall coming down and, and freedom going to Eastern Europe, yes, we might be able to see uh, freedom in the Baltics within the next 20 years, but for the Soviet Union uh, coming apart, we're talking probably about a 30 or 40 year project. Well, five years later, Bob Kreeble was able to kind of chuckle and, and, and prove me wrong. They were all proved wrong. A victory to be sure, but a vulnerable victory. It's one thing to tear something down. It's another thing to build something up, to build a future for Eastern Europe. Bob's training was not just how to tear down a government, but rather how to build up those institutions of civil society. The institutions that include uh, commitment to free enterprise, most fundamentally a rule of law. Uh, how do you rewrite a constitution for a country that has never had free elections or, or uh, a, a free society, let alone a free economy? The story of economic opportunity needed to be spread widely throughout the former Soviet Union and the people were eager to listen. I needed help, so I turned to others who had become successful entrepreneurs in America and asked for their assistance. I invited other businessmen to join my program, to tell their case histories, to speak on business subjects. Soon I had many volunteers paying their own way just to tell the story of the benefits of democratic capitalism to people who had been taught that it was evil. The message was a clear one. The power of democratic capitalism to create prosperity and to instill generosity, not greed, in the hearts and souls of men. As Bob's own example showed, and continued to show. And Bob would frequently come back and tell us how when he went over, he went over with a stack of $100 bills, and eventually uh, he would he would end up by investing and giving some entrepreneur in Minsk 
or in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, or somewhere, uh, $500 because this man had an idea that he could start a new small business. And Bob would say, that sounds great. He said, you need some capital. He did, but Bob Creeple didn't need to do any of this. And yet, as Paul Harvey said in his radio address, The Cold Warriors, he felt he had to. Harvey reflects, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. That was the advice of poet Dylan Thomas to an elderly father in 1952. And it's still good advice today. There is no reason why as we advance through our golden years that we should tread any lighter upon the earth. If there was ever a man living up to this standard, it is retired American businessman Robert Creeble. Bob Creeble will tell you that his efforts are not entirely altruistic. With the awesome weapons now available, he does not want his grandchildren to live in fear of incineration. And so he goes, airliner to airliner, carrying his luggage, shuttling around the world in a tedious pilgrimage, educating all who will listen. Get off the self-pity pot and get on their feet and reach for the stars. Bob Creeble, This Day in History. And thanks to Ed Fulner for his help. This Day in History is always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. Bob Creeble would have been 100 years old today. On This Day in History, he died in 1997.